and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 2nd, Green Goo and Gross Glens, Stuart Gordon double feature. Hello everyone, welcome back for October 2nd, second day of our 31 Days of Halloween special. We'll be taking, we'll be talking about the first two feature films by a personal favorite director of mine, Stuart Gordon, who sadly passed away in March of 2020. I'm going to give a little background on him here because I think it is relevant here, uh, especially given his later career. Stuart Gordon was born in Chicago in August of 1947 and eventually enrolled in the theater program at UW-Madison. Weirdly enough, he went to the theater program because for some reason he wasn't allowed in their, he couldn't enroll in their film program. And he set to uh, producing some very transgressive, very counterculture plays to the point where he actually got shut down by the cops a few times. Uh, One, for example, was an adaptation of Peter Pan retooled to be an anti-war protest uh, and actually (laughs) uh, retooled it so that, uh, you know, Captain Hook, for example, was very clearly supposed to be a mayor daily of Chicago. Uh, he also incorporated liquid light shows and other forms of psychedelic imagery. And, you know, not just with the mayor, but he made each character an analog for uh, contemporary political figures. So theater is a big component of his background. It was a bigger one than film, actually, at this time. And he actually founded his own theater in Madison in 1969 and actually had to move the venue three times due to repeated police harassment. I presume for similar reasons, just because, you know, he was one of those goddamn hippies, and the cops just could not abide that. So, sometime in the early 1980s, he and his wife, Carolyn Purdy, moved out to California to pursue filmmaking. And right about the same time the uh, Evil Dead came out, I think uh, these movies actually got released... Uh, Sort of in between the first two Evil Dead coming out, actually. Basically back-to-back. His first movie, we got Reanimator. And I enjoy this movie not just for the boldness in filmmaking or the, the weirdness of it, but also just the audacity of the release, because this was released unrated. And the eventual home release version for rentals is one of the few instances I know where the director's cut is actually shorter than the... where one of the cut versions is actually shorter than the... Well, okay, never mind. What I meant to say was that the cut version is actually longer. Because what they did is that they cut some of the gore out and added in some scenes that were, you know, considered deleted scenes. They were removed for pacing issues. So... Yeah, that's sort of the background of Stuart Gordon, and Reanimator was his first uh, director's, it was his director's debut, his first feature film, shot over the course of six weeks in 1984, released a year later, and we open with the, uh, a scene at some medical institute in Switzerland, where after a couple of shots, we see the unfortunate result of an experiment, it is implied that Dr. Yes, actually, his name is Dr. Hans Gruber. Some of you might recognize that name as uh, Alan Rickman's character in Die Hard. 
weird coincidence because as far as I know, Hans Gruber is not a character in the original story. And and this was before, you know, Die Hard came out. So whatever. But he's killed by the effects of Herbert West's reagent. Herbert West is our main character, played by Jeffrey Combs. We get a very colorful, like, Saul Bass-style opening with... It's a wonderful score, but we already knew that it was a wonderful score when Bernard Herrmann composed it for Psycho. Like, you seriously, go listen to, uh, you know, reanimator opening credits music and then listen to the Psycho opening theme. It's basically the same thing. And after that, we cut to a scene of the Medical Institute at Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts. Yes, uh, this is where the Arkham Asylum from Batman. It is named after uh, Arkham from H.P. Lovecraft stories. Herbert West is transferred here to continue his studies, and this is where we get our main cast for the rest of the movie. We have Dean Halsey, head of the college. We have Herbert West, obviously. We have Dan Kane, played by Bruce Abbott, who's this sort of uh, you know young go-getter student who's like you know really dedicated to this idea of being a physician of some sort. Uh, Meg Halsey, Dean's daughter and uh, Dan's girlfriend, and Doctor Hill, this uh, brilliant neurosurgeon who has this like really really creepy obsession with Meg. So those are our five characters. Uh, remember I said Stuart Gordon got his start in theater and this movie is not just theatrical in terms of set and stages, but also in, uh, the way the cast is. I mean, there's basically like five characters. There's some like signer character. There's like signer minor characters. I'm sorry. I wanted to say side and minor and my brain just met in the middle, but yeah, there's some minor characters here and there like security guards or nurses, uh, policemen. Uh, so it's theatrical in that sense. It could basically work as a stage play. And everyone also has a sort of like over-the-top performance where there's there's not subtle. It's not sedate and calm. Everything is, we're going to speak so the people in the back can hear us. And, well, you know, like I said, it's not just it's theatrical in that sense, but it has actually been made into a stage play. Reanimator the Musical, also directed by Stuart Gordon. But despite what at first, at a surface level, just seems like pure schlocky fun, there is a fair amount of characterization. Meg, for example, you know, she's stuck in between, you know, trying to get along with her dad and balancing that with her relationship with Dan. Dan is trying to finish finish his education, become a doctor. Uh, Herbert West is obsessed with perfecting his reagent so that you know, as he puts it, he can defeat death. And he doesn't really care who gets hurt in the process. Between Hill and West, we have this theme of, uh, I, th- I think Jay Bauman of Red Letter Media put it up, put it fairly well. He said, there's a theme of an uncreative person versus a creative person. Hill is set up early on as being very uninspired. Uh, West comments that Hill's work is so derivative of Gruber's work that in a lot of places in Europe, it's considered plagiarism. Hill, for example, is also dead set on the idea that brain death always occurs in the sort of 6 to 12 minutes after all vital signs cease. And West has these ideas about you know, sustaining life much longer than that, and not only doing that, but finding ways to reanimate dead tissue. It's this... Uh, it's like snippets of exposition, gore, 
then more exposition. And it's perfectly paced, so it's like a perfect ramp up. It's a you get manages to keep your attention and fiddle on in despite the fact that it's only like eighty five minutes. On top of that, the movie is full of tons of quotable lines, memorable scenes, great performances, fun sequences that you're willing to overlook the grade of the effects. I think I counted like three different times where I saw like the shadow of the boom mic. And I am not going to say what it is if you have not seen this movie somehow, but (laughs) regarding that scene at the end, um, I will say the first time I played this for a party, a friend got stoned on the couch, passed out, and he woke up at that scene, and I wish I could have... I wish I could have recorded his face because it was some of the funniest shit I've ever seen. But if you've seen the movie, you know what I mean. And if you haven't, go watch it. It's just fucking absurd. And given what it is, it's upsetting as it should be, but it's one of those moments in film history that is artistic almost because of how transgressive and weird it is. And I think I remember reading that Barbara Crampton, the actress, actually replaced someone else who got cold feet at the last minute. She just comes in and she's like, here, hold my beer. (laughs) and i mean meg is also like um you know she's not you know she's not just standard damsel in distress it's more than that she she definitely feels like she's in control when she's all when she's in a scene and i think someone summed it up as like it works so well because even though it's obviously fake crampton believes what's happening to her in that scenario so moving on, the thing that surprised me most was that this seemed like the kind of thing your stereotypical film critic would hate, <laughs> but apparently at the time it got rave reviews. As of writing this, it stands at a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, and none other than the late, great Roger Ebert actually gave it a 3 out of 4 stars. It's a horror comedy, but not in the same way that Return of the Living Dead or An American Werewolf in London is. Those two movies are first and foremost horror movies, and they have some comedy in them, usually kind of situational comedy. This is not a horror movie with humor. This is a comedy with gore. Uh, If I can wax poetic a little bit, I still remember that day fondly in summer, right after high school graduation. I picked this up on a lark from my local Barnes & Noble bargain bin for like five bucks, just because it looked weird and funny. Not only did I later spring for the Arrow Video Blu-ray, but it's also become one of my favorite films. Such was the success that the producer Brian Usna actually directed two sequels. Uh, I would recommend Bride of Reanimator, which is the first one. Uh, Beyond Reanimator isn't that great. And he also had an idea for a fourth movie, which was a sort of blend of this and H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau, which, you know, as weird as it would have been, that would have been a cool premise, just, you know, The Island of the Reanimated. But, you know, it did well. Like I said, it was released unrated. Uh, It was actually cut, quote-unquote, by adding some scenes and cutting out the gore for a home video release. But... Yeah, this is something that if you haven't seen it, go watch it already. Because I was surprised seeing just how uh, ingrained it was. I mean, there's a scene in American Beauty, of all movies, uh, where 
it's referenced by name. Uh, it's that scene again, so I'm not going to spoil it if you haven't seen it because you need to see it to be believed. And I can't, I can't do that end scene justice with words. So, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know how to end. I'm not good at segues, if you haven't noticed. But I guess we're just going to move on to uh, From Beyond. Now, this is a bit under a year later. Stuart Gordon directed another film based on a Lovecraft short story. And when I said at the top that these are very, very loosely based, I meant it. In From Beyond, the pre-credit sequence is the entirety of the original story. The rest is original based off of the original premise. Uh, Basic synopsis is that Jeffrey Combs again plays Crawford Tillinghast, who is a character in the original story, though his role has changed. Uh, He's the assistant to the mad scientist instead of the mad scientist. He works with an original character named Dr. Pretorius, who is doing experiments with a device just called the Resonator. Uh, Pretorius is killed in the experiment because something goes wrong. Tillinghast is brought in because the police think he's the murderer. Uh, Barbara Crampton comes in, comes back as well, plays this uh, brilliant uppity psychiatrist who... She's also like... She's a very forward-thinking one, and she's also very young. They sort of, uh, you know, pejoratively call her the girl wonder. But she convinces the police to release him to her custody, and she brings him back to the house with a detective played by uh, Ken Forey from, you know, Dawn of the Dead to act as police protection. So this was his second movie, and it's definitely a massive step up from Reanimator in terms of the effects. Uh, the story is not as focused, and the comedy it's still a very it's still a very goofy movie, but it's not as like comedically self aware. But it definitely makes up the difference in weirdness. Um, it has the same ramp up in terms of story pacing, but I think the, it exceeds it with the terms in terms of the climax of the story. Um, so what happens with the resonator is that you turn on the machine. And it stimulates the uh, pineal gland in your head, which is a real thing. Um, it's been the it's been the subject of all manner of like urban legends. I actually, you know, not to go back to fear and loathing again, but you know, in fear and loathing, there's a bit of dialogue where you know it's suggested that you can achieve like the highest of all highs if you like gnaw on someone's pineal gland which i really don't know how that would work out <laughs> but in terms of the story in both this the original short story as kind of a sort of nod to the old uh Descartes the uh, philosopher René Descartes idea that it was the seat of the soul for lack of a better term it'll it allows people in close proximity to the resonator to see this other plane of existence. The problem is that it also has the effect of allowing these creatures of that other plane to see them. Uh, Crampton's character also develops a hypothesis that maybe the schizophrenics at the hospital also have this uh, enlarged pineal gland, or at least some of them do. And, I say that this is set apart from other B-movies of the era because of the clever writing here. Uh, Dennis Paoli, actually, he's the guy who wrote both of these movies for Stuart Gordon. 
And it's also produced by Brian Usna again. But, you know, it is the clever writing because we see these people in their cells at the asylum. They're raving about the monsters everywhere. Some of them are displaying signs of, you know, hypersexuality. I mean, she walks in and looks in on this guy just, like, masturbating, and he just looks at her, and she just walks away. It's very eerily similar to that, you know, look at the blood scene in Silence of the Lambs. But, and they all also seem to be exceedingly nervous and jittery. And as the movie goes on, like, these, they, this three, they start to show, um, <laughs> they start to show some of those same signs. As far as effects go, we get some really impressive ones, like this giant, worm monster puppet writhing around in the basement when it fills up with water or this weird like bat monster that attacks Crawford <laughs> or there's this one scene I <laughs> I remember where one of the characters is killed and he gets melted into like this sort of goopy skeleton with like T-Rex puppet arms <laughs> it's actually kind of it's actually kind of hilarious just seeing it because his head is like perfectly intact and then there's Probably one of my favorite moments is just like Jeffrey Combs character. At one point, his pineal gland has grown so much that it actually bursts out of his forehead like an eye stalk and just starts flicking around. And he grabs a nurse that is actually played by Carolyn Purdy, the director's wife, and is the subject of the notorious eyeball sucking scene. (laughs) He plucks her eye out, knees her in the gut, and then just starts sucking her brain out through her eye socket. It's, <laughs> oh God, I'm sorry if I'm scaring off anyone from this, but it, it's hysterical just trying to describe this movie to you because it's just fucking madness. The film is a wild ride, and I would say that from Stuart Gordon, it's probably my second favorite other than Reanimator. And I do want to say a few words about him because I feel like he's underrated as far as like genre filmmaking goes, you know, I mean, he's most well known for his horror contributions and I'll be talking about him again briefly because we're going to be covering the masters of horror television series later in the month, but he's also made like robot jocks. It's a really, you know, tame movie about some post-apocalyptic world where the countries settle their disputes by, uh, mostly wagering land and resources on what's essentially just giant mech suit combat. It's like, there's hardly any blood, there's no sexual content, there's no foul language, really. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you'd like watch on a Saturday morning as a small child, basically. Uh, there's Fortress, which I've heard someone else describe as the best Paul Verhoeven movie that Verhoeven never made. And there's a couple sent to a prison in the far-off dystopian future of 2017 for violating a one-child policy. He's made uh, another H.P. Lovecraft adaptation called Dagon, although it is more based off of the shadow over Innsmouth. Uh, other than that, in that sense, it is a fa- in that sense it is a faithful adaptation, although the setting is moved to uh, contemporary Spain rather than turn-of-the-century Massachusetts. Um, his last three movies before he retired from film were these really grounded, realistic, and really dark dramas. Um, one was King of the Ants, where this sort of like, you know, nobody in this little, I think it was a town, I think it was a city in Ohio. I can't remember. It's been a while, but he gets hired to be the sort of amateur hitman 
and then gets double crossed by the um, the crime boss that he worked for. We had Edmund, an adaptation of a David Mamet play, where he's hemmed by William H Macy, and then Stuck, where there's a re- where it's a real life story of a homeless man who got hit by uh, a nurse driving home from her job and got stuck in the windshield, and she just left him there. Yeah, just didn't call anyone, didn't report it. So yeah, that one's called Stuck. And those were his last three movies. And it just shows that he's he's a very, he was a very versatile filmmaker. It's a shame he, you know, uh, never really enjoyed the same, you know, commercial and critical success that a lot of his peers did, but especially because I think some of those earlier movies, it's like, I think he's on like at least David Cronenberg levels when it comes to body horror, just letting you know how disgusting it can be. But I think the most hilarious bit of trivia that I learned was that there was a certain film by Disney that he came very close to directing. And that was honey. I shrunk the kids (laughs) him and Brian Usna actually made the, actually wrote the script. They wrote the screenplay and they brought it to Disney and he was supposed to direct it and he backed out because of illness. I haven't been able to verify this, but I've heard that the illness was actually stress induced because he just could not deal with like the corporate suits at Disney trying to like, you know, nitpick everything that he did. So they turned it over to Joe Johnston, but they left the script mostly intact and yeah, honey, I shrunk the kids. Never thought that the guy who wrote and who directed Reanimator and From Beyond would be allowed within a hundred miles of Disney, but whatever. So yeah, I'll be so yeah, go watch something directed by Stuart Gordon, even if it's not these two. Uh I am planning on releasing two supplements soon after this episode goes up where I read the respective short stories in their entirety. If that interests you, keep an eye on the feed. Tomorrow, we are going to be talking about the Exorcist franchise. So warm so warm up some split pea soup and join me. Thank you. Good night. Signing off. Bye.